Earthbed Muscle is a grassroots supplement company created by some of the best strength coaches in the United States to provide their athletes with wholesome supplements. Earthbed Muscle has changed the supplement industry with their minimal ingredient approach to sports nutrition. Dane's platform is also brought to you by the Acceleration Diet. The Acceleration Diet is a customized weight loss program catered to each individual, their needs, and their schedule. Accelerate your metabolism today with the Acceleration Diet. Finally, Dane's platform is also brought to you by Holistic Encapsulations. Holistic Encapsulations provides organic hemp extract with an incredible 27 to 1 CBD ratio. Loaded with CBDs, hemp extract has been shown to decrease anxiety, have a positive impact on cancer, improve sleep, improve brain function, and decrease inflammation. Head over to HolisticEncapsulations.com today and get on the path to holistic recovery. All right, so we're here at Dane's Platform for uh, episode one with Brooks Miller of North Mountain Pastures. Brooks, thanks for coming. No problem, Dane. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Brooks is my my older brother and uh, smaller brother. Um, More athletic brother. <laughs> so he has a background in aerospace engineering. He went to Penn State University while I was at school as well. And we spent a lot of time together, you know, doing typical brother stuff, beating the shit out of each other and just playing games and stuff like that. And Brooks has a very unique story where... As he grew up, he had this unique in, interest in engineering and math and uh, nerdy, dorky stuff like that. Graduated from Penn State with an aerospace engineering degree. Could have pursued, you know, pretty much anything he wanted. Where he had an internship with Boeing and internship with NASA. And Brooks decided to forgo any career in aerospace engineering and got into sustainable farming. So Brooks, yeah. tell us your thought process. My thought process for becoming a farmer? Yeah. Um, so a big, a big part of it for me uh, was being in college and enjoying the stuff that I was learning in college. Um, <clears throat> well, I guess even step back a little bit more than that. So in high school, I took um, the technical drawing classes with Mr. Bucks. And then I took CAD classes. So I, so I had all the computer aided drafting stuff that you could take by the time you were a junior. And so I did independent study with Mr. Bucks when I was a senior. And that's when I really got to do actual design work for the first time as a, as a high school senior. Um, <clears throat> and I had also worked like jobs that were, were pretty manual labor <clears throat> so, so the Christmas tree farm working with Rick Geisler and then working with Rick Wien. I wor started working with Rick Geisler when I was like 12 and all those guys, you know, everybody who I worked with there, whether they were the American dudes or the Mexican dudes always wanted to like show me stuff, you know, how the stuff worked. Um, cause we used a lot of, you know, sprayers and, um, you know, we had a giant truck that ground up like fertilizer and, and newspapers and you sprayed it out, you know, the big green the big green spray that you see people using to plant stuff. Um, yeah, hydro cedars, exactly. Um, so those guys would always show me stuff and I was always interested in how that stuff worked. Um, so then in college, I really enjoyed my classes, you know, doing whenever we had, so I was a project manager for, um, for like an independent study program that actually sent a payload up on the space shuttle uh, when, I was a, when I was a sophomore and a junior and a senior. So I, I started getting like leadership experience with that 
And then I was also the project manager for our senior project. So we had to split up into groups and do, um, you know, do like a senior project where we designed a replacement for the space shuttle from start to finish. And I really enjoyed it. And then when I was working at Boeing, it was like the opposite of that. All the guys, I had like three different bosses there. And <clears throat> really there was only one guy who had any kind of career path that I actually thought was interesting. Um, you know, he didn't go the management route. He was still working on design as a, as a senior engineer. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, this is the kind of thing I could see myself doing. And I asked him like, how many people are there like you, you know, at, at Boeing Satellite Systems? And the guy was like, there's like two of us. <laughs> and I was just like, what? He's like, yeah, man. He's like, yeah, no, everybody wants to become a manager. And like my boss who was a manager, all he did was like HR stuff. Um, you know, he, he understood engineering stuff, but he wasn't doing actual engineering work. And I just couldn't see sitting at a computer doing that sort of thing, um, you know, for the rest of my life. And I had also started working on a government, um, a government program where, you know, the name of the project, it was pretty obvious that it was like something that none of us knew about. And when I talked to the guy who was more of a, was more of a managerial manager, I said, well, like, are we allowed to know what this even is? You know, just like, just, you don't have to tell me all the details, but I just wanted to know, like, what are we working on? And, uh, and he's like, no, this, you know, this is like classified. And he's like, I know what it is, but like none of the other engineers know what it is. And so like, you're definitely not going to know what it is. And I was like, well, is everybody like just cool with that? <laughs> is everybody just cool with working on crap that we have no idea whether it's, you know, just a communication satellite or it's a spy satellite or it's something that, you know, might like, you know, send coordinates to blow somebody up someday that I completely disagree with. And he's like, yeah, dude, nobody cares. He's like, of course. <laughs> like nobody knows, but nobody gives a shit about that stuff. And so that kind of combined with the stuff that you and I were into at that point in my life, which was like, uh, like Noam Chomsky and Michael Albert and Howard Zinn, um, what was that magazine? Z magazine. Z magazine. Yeah, all that stuff. You know, I, I started thinking that the the for me, what I wanted to do was to be responsible for the energy that I consumed on the planet. And and at the my first thought was like fossil fuel energy. Um, but that kind of gradually evolved into well, like the biggest form of energy that we use every day is food. And we really should be responsible for the food that we eat and I just felt completely irresponsible for it and even though we had been around you know gardening growing up I I just hadn't really thought of it you know we still eat we still ate but skinless boneless chicken breasts that came from factory farmed chickens and you know pork loins that were coming out of confinement uh, operations and stuff like that so I guess I just felt like I wanted to be become responsible for what I was consuming while I was on the planet um and in it, you know, I think uh, not now I feel like my whole my whole life is about being a producer rather than a consumer in all aspects. And I feel like, you know, you're probably the same way where I, I look at everything and I say, OK, how can I be creative and how can I be a producer rather than a consumer? Um, and so, you know, that that was my my thought process was much more politically minded than. Um, you know, I think a lot of people come to farming through like health problems or, 
Um, family, just heritage. Yeah, or family, um, or or like they, you know, like what I would call lifestyle dropouts. They just don't feel like they fit anywhere else, and so they're like, "Oh, cool, man! Organic farming's pretty sweet," and so they start doing it. And I think a lot of those people are the ones who end up, you know, going back to something else because they don't get the business sense, or they don't realize you have to work really hard, or you know, all of the all of the various things that you actually have to do to run a business and be successful and not just in agriculture, but in everything, you know? So like your business and my business are, are very similar in terms of how hard we have to work. And the fact that we have to do customer service, marketing, production, all the different things that, you know, most businesses have whole departments for, we have to do every single aspect of that. So you, you have to have a pretty diverse skill set, no matter what. Yeah. I think going back to the, like the whole beginning story for me, it was, I had that same interest in, and I don't think that we were ever like completely sheltered from farming growing up but you know, we were exposed to it to an extent and i think just like going into my junior year i guess when we really started to be like anti-totalitarian and spending hours in the in the computer lab printing up uh, uh what was that uh, freedom of information act yeah that's right you know like we spent so much time trying project to northwoods out. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so much time trying to figure out how we could solve all the world's problems and and what crusade that we could create yeah to to change the world the way that we wanted to change it and i think that that's dude i i still think it's the root of everything it is it for sure is for me i mean like you know i i think that we both realized oh shit everybody's been lying to us this whole time and and as like a 20 year old kid you're like what like dude this is crazy (laughs) you know but then as you mature you go oh this is literally like every aspect of our culture is Uh is this way um or our society maybe not our culture but our society is definitely that way and it's like once you realize that's happening on a political scale you know it's happening with your food you know because food and politics are so entwined and and then you know same same as you like you know what's happening with your supplements you know what's happening with you know the way people train people are just trying to mislead you all day to sell the thing that they're trying to sell and no one has any real principles which is really where mom and dad succeeded the most is having is instilling us with positive moral and ethical principles um and i feel like that's the common you know the common thread that the three of us have you know, including our sister, is that we make decisions based on, like, not just how is this going to make me better in the world, but how is this going to affect the world at large? How is this going to affect my peers immediately around me? You know, how will people in my in my immediate community think of me if I do this, rather than just, this is going to work well for me, so I'm going to do it right now. Yeah. So, I guess if we fast forward a little bit, now you have technically you have four children um, <laughs> three with one on the way yeah and you're what you're 36 so how like looking back on the last like 10 or 12 years like i look back and i think about for for me if i take a, if i make an experiment in training if i make an experiment with an athlete and it fails it's okay. Like, like the world's not going to end. I'm not, I'm not losing money off of it with you, especially at your, at your new farm or relatively new farm that you bought, what, like six years ago. 
if you're taking, you know, if you're experimenting and you're trying to, to come up with these grand logistical uh, plans and you're going through everything to de- develop your farm because it wasn't in the family and it, and, and you're trying to go up against these big factory farms and stuff like that. How do you, how do you not sit there and be like, God damn, man, like, am I ever going to, am I ever going to at least get a little bit, a little victory in this battle? Yeah. Yeah. So the hard thing there is how many athletes do you train on a regular basis? Like in, Uh, in the gym, not, not even online or anything like that, but in the gym, how many athletes do you write programs for on a regular basis? For me personally, I'd say 35 or 40. Right. So, so. So if you, if you use that same line of reasoning, right, you have, let's say you have 40 experiments going on at any given time, right? right. And, and each of those is probably like a five or six week experiment, right? Or, or it's a long-term program that you're, that's, that the five or six week, you know, cycle is part of. So like agriculture, I feel like you get <laughs> every year is one experiment, right? Every year is one try at it. And so the, the, you know, the, the stakes are definitely higher um, for the biological side of things, but like for the for like the mechanical side of things, it's a little bit less critical because you know it's the same as engineering. You're doing like design iterations, you know, you're changing things on the fly. The real frustrating thing is that like there's really not very much money in agriculture, so you don't have, you know, I don't I don't have an R and D department where I can be like dude, I have this great idea for a hog feeder that's going to work on pasture, you know, and the first, the first uh, iteration of it's going to cost us like, like four grand. And then after that, we can adjust. It's like, no, I have to figure out how I can build that thing for less than two grand by myself while I'm doing all the other shit that I do, you know, and actually make it work. So I think it's, I don't know, for me, it's partly lifestyle and partly principles. Like I like to live the way that I live. Um, I would prefer if we had, you know, disposable income where I could take, you know, set aside like 30 or 40 grand every year and be like, all right, I'm just going to try shit with this money, you know, mechanical stuff, biological stuff, whatever, and make that, you know, and, and make things work and see, and see what sticks and then, and then do that stuff year after year. Um, but that doesn't really exist in the, in the, you know, in any, in any kind of agricultural business that doesn't really exist unless you're unless you're big and you've been established for a long time. Um, so I, I feel like I try and look at things like, am I enjoying my life on a daily basis? And one, we homeschool our kids. I get to see my kids every day. Um, you know, I get to see Kai, Kai works with me all the time. I've seen his work ethic develop from when he was, you know, two, three, four years old. And he was just like, you know, Hey daddy, I want to do this to, to now where I see him handle pigs infinitely better than any new employee or intern that we get on the farm to the point where he's like, yo, dude, stop running around. Like, just be calm, like open the gate, be calm. The pig will go in there, just put some food over there, you know? And, and he's like teaching these dumb 20 year old interns, you know, how to, how to actually behave around animals. And for him, it's, he just knows it, you know, he knows it. And, um, so, so that part of it is a, is a big thing for me. We, you know, we train, we train three times a week together. I'm his wrestling coach and his, and his soccer coach, uh, you know, with the girls just the other day, like it was, it was the afternoon and I had bought them these, um, how to draw books, like how to draw a tree, how to draw animal, how to draw trees, how to draw animals, how to draw 
flowers, like each different thing. And I, you know, I finished lunch. I had a couple things to do on the computer and I was just like, Layla, you want to, you want to draw some trees? <laughs> we sat there, we sat there for an hour and a half drawing trees and, you know, I could never do that if I had an office job, if I had a job where I was an aerospace engineer and I was gone for the entire day, you know, and it, it, and maybe I would definitely make a lot more money that way. But, but this way, like Layla knows where I'm at. She knows, she knows that I'm taking time from doing things outside to sit and be with her. And she appreciates that. And, you know, I, I think that's it for me. It's just knowing that we're doing something and, and the fact that we have 300 customers who are eating, you know, pasture raised proteins every day and feel better with their health because of it, you know, feel better about their their purchasing power because of it, um, you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's a, that's the next thing I wanted to go over. Is like, okay, so we see the family side, we see, you know, the the principal side, but now walk us through your farm experience. You know, if somebody came up there and filmed your, you know, your daily existence and what you go through, and and then put it on a website, what would that look like, and how how is that positively impacting the environment? How is that positively impacting your food production, and then in turn, how is that positively impacting you know society? Yeah. So you're asking about what what my day to day is like, and then also how like what are my sort of what are my goals like with well, I would doing say, this i would say more like what is what is the farm layout like walk us through the roles of the chickens what the roles of the pigs oh, okay the... um yeah so we have uh we don't have chickens this time of year but chickens are coming next month so by february 19th we'll have our first our first broilers meat birds back on the farm how we, many chickens do you do in a year uh between like 8000 so, so we might do 10,000 next year. We're going to up it a little bit. So we might actually do 10,000 birds next year. Um, pigs, we do, um, what did we finish last year? About 220 pigs. And we could do probably 250, 275 this year. Um, we could probably do about 600 pigs per year on the farm long term. It's just right now we don't really have a market for 600 pigs a year. Um, so, yeah, so we have the pigs all year, and then we have sheep also. Uh, we used to raise beef, but we don't raise beef anymore because we just weren't making a profit on it. And, um, you know, we, we have to make a profit on the things that we do or else we don't get to live here anymore. Um, so, yeah, so the farm is about, it's 85 acres. It's about half woods, half uh, open pasture. Every year we plant... Um, uh, over a hundred trees into the pasture to make it more of a savanna type ecosystem. Um, we haven't started really thinning back the woods yet, but we're going to start. Um, I mean, we have a little bit, but we're going to start, you know, actually writing a, writing a forestry plan to start, um, clearing the woods out, making the, even the woods areas more like a savanna type ecosystem. Um, and the idea with that being that we have these trees, producing like a second layer of forage beyond what the grasses and the clover and the turnips and things that we plant on the on the ground um, you know we have apples and chestnuts and hazelnuts and things like that producing edible fruits and nuts for both the animals and for human consumption um, so almost think about it like a, like a giant fruit and nut garden with grass growing between the rows 
Right. That's kind of like my long-term vision is, is a, is just an 85 acre fruit and nut garden, um, where, you know, underneath the rows and they're not really rows cause we plant on contour. So it's more like contoured rows, um, underneath the rows, we plant annual, um, forages and perennial forages. The difference being like the perennial forages are grasses that are there year after year, um, the annuals are things that are planted one year and then generally they're done. Sometimes they go to seed and they come back the next year. Um, but usually they're done after that one year. And so those would be like radishes, turnips, um, brassicas, like rapeseed, um, you know, kale. Um, and what those annuals do is, you know, some of them like, some of them root way down into the ground and then the pigs bite off the top of it and then the root just turns into soil. Um, some of them, you know, like kale brings other nutrients up to the surface that grasses won't generally bring up to the surface and it keeps my animals healthier. Um, you know, some of them are, um, are a combination of the two, you know, they're bringing nutrients up and they're also, um, they're also feeding the soil microbes. Um, and so ultimately what, what I'm trying to do is, is establish a, perennial, what I would call a perennial polyculture ecosystem. So perennial meaning that it's stuff that comes back year after year after year. So that's the trees, the grasses, um, you know, the bushes, some of the, some of the, um, some of the forbs on the ground. So clover, things like that, but then also have annuals planted in there for various reasons, um, ultimately to, to build the soil. So that's our, our number one goal is to be building soil year after year. Um, and if we're not building soil, we're not really doing our job, which that's, you know, that's kind of where we've gone with agriculture in the last 60 years is don't care about soil microbes. Don't care about soil structure. Don't care about, um, soil fertility, just add the nutrients that make plants grow big and fat. And then none of the micronutrients are in there anymore. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so I see my job as essentially building topsoil for future generations. Um, and that topsoil inherently will feed my plants better, which will feed my animals better. Um, so it's kind of a like feedback loop where all the things work together um, and adding the trees into it is a whole nother step where, you know, one, you're getting the benefits of shade, two, you're getting the benefits of, you know, them producing extra forage, the, the nuts and the fruits dropping down and the animals eating those things. But three, you're also bringing up different nutrients from the ground because you've got trees with like really deep tap roots. Um, you're also holding the soil in place because the trees are deeply rooted and they're going to hold the soil in place better than just grass by itself will. Um, and you're also the leaves will provide stuff for the topsoil as well. Yeah, exactly. The leaves will provide tough stuff for the topsoil. And think about how many bird species are going to live in those tree limbs also that wouldn't live there uh, without the trees there. Um, you know, so it's almost like the ed it's almost like our whole farm is becoming like the edge of the woods. And the edge of the woods is where all the activity is. You know, that's where all the birds are hanging out because they can go into the woods for shelter, but they can come out of the woods and get all the food they need. Um, and so that's kind of the, the long-term plan is that savanna sort of ecosystem where, you know, big animals can thrive. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, especially like, so I'm just thinking like if, if you have nuts, like, is that where, you know, pigs can feed off the nuts and, and any of the pear trees and stuff like that? Like, would that, do you think that that will lead to a diminishing or where you would have diminished costs on feed or do you think you'll still have the same amount of costs as far as feed is concerned? Yeah. Um, I, 
I think that, I mean, I hope we have diminishing costs because of that. I think that there are, I think that there's a good chance that, um, you know, like if, if the farm were set up, if I took my 25 year picture of the farm and it was suddenly existing like that today, I think we could raise way less animals on the farm and have essentially almost a closed system and have it be profitable because we would not have to, we would not have to sell quite so many animals to make up for all the feed that we purchase in. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that it's, it would be a much more sustainable closed loop kind of system than what we have to do now, which is buy in a lot of feed to feed the animals that we then have to, to sell to make a, a living. But buying in feed is also like buying in nutrients for us, you know? So, you know, about two thirds of the feed goes through the animal and ends up on the ground in the form of manure. And because we move our animals every day, that manure gets distributed evenly across my whole farm. And then we've got, extra topsoil where everything was distributed right. so in two minutes answer why more farmers aren't doing this type of farming because uh, it's harder <laughs> <laughs> more more farmers aren't doing this you know why because it's harder to get a loan to do this you have yeah. to go and ultimately in our society you have to get money you have to get capital and it's way harder to convince a banker to take a risk on you doing something that is not commonplace so i could go into a bank right now and say i'm going to build a 10,000 pig house and i need this much feed coming in here's how many pigs are going to go out here's how much money i'm going to make in a year and they would probably you know sign sign off on that no problem because they know it's like a done deal it's it's a sure bet but if i go in there and i say i'm going to raise 300 pigs a year um there there exists no infrastructure for me to like throw in and make it work tomorrow i have to build everything myself I have to put up all the fences myself i have to buy the farm on this completely unsure bet um you know it's just it's, it's like kind of obvious that they would say uh dude you're that's ridiculous so i think it's really hard for farmers to get into it and i think that farmers like everybody are pretty set in their ways so you, so going to some it would take like somebody hitting rock bottom you know i've seen stories of guys who they they changed their ways from conventional agriculture to this kind of agriculture when you know the one guy in food inc like he got he yeah, got tusked. Yeah, he got tusked by a boar, and he was gonna freaking die from it. Or, or somebody has been milking cows their whole life, doing everything that the extension agency tells you to do, and you know they still can't get out of debt. And then somebody says, "Oh, well, why don't you sell grass-fed milk, and you can get you know four times as much for it, and milk like half the number of cows." And the only way they're gonna do that is if they have literally no other options. You know, people don't generally change because they're, uh, you know progressive and open to change innovative yeah. yeah they generally change because like the shit hit the fan and they have to change right so that's that would be my my guess as to why all right i want to finish up this episode well we'll finish up this episode and i want to i want to pick this up in our next interview with you where we can just go off of the what do you call it the this type of farming and then how how you use everything and you use every animal to sort of what their role is specifically and then and then go into your family but that'd be we'll, we'll do that in the next episode okay sounds good
Thanks, Brooks. You're a real swell fella. Oh, thanks, Dane. Hey, I love your podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's really changed my life. Uh, Earth-fed muscle all the way. <laughs> At this time, we want to give a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Dane's Platform. Remember to look out for our next episode and check out our sponsors, Earth-Fed Muscle, The Acceleration Diet, and Holistic Encapsulations. Who's? <laughs> All right. See ya. Later.